Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. All right, everyone. Hello. Welcome back to the Radically Loved podcast. I am so excited to introduce you to our guest today. We have Carla McLaren on the show, and Carla is an award-winning author, a social science researcher, and empathy innovator. We're going to talk about a lot about emotions today. If you're watching on YouTube, I'm holding up the, well, what for me is a revised and updated copy proof that I get the pleasure of having before it comes out into the real world. But the title of the book is The Language of Emotions, What Your Feelings Are Trying to Tell You. And this originally came out in 2010. And so this updated version is revised, adding some amazing new content in for you and coming out on, is it June 27th, Carla? Yes. June 27th. So right about when this podcast airs, you will be able to get the updated and revised copy. So emotions. There's so many things to say about emotions, (laughs) Carla, and you have such an interesting origin story. And thank you for authentically sharing your truth in the beginning of this book. It sounds like it's really informed your life's work. And I'm wondering if you want to share anything about that as it relates to what took you down this path of working with the language of emotions? Yeah, I think one of the reasons that, I, that I'm so open about my story is because this work on emotions doesn't come from the mainstream. I'm an outsider and an outlier. And my early childhood, which was punctuated by a long-term molestation by the, the dad across the street, and this started around when I was three, I think, So you're developing language, you're developing your concept of gender, you're developing your concept of who you are in social groups, right? Who is this little being going to be? And that was happening, right? So I had my regular life and I had, well, I guess that was a part of my regular life. It was a part of the neighborhood. And where I went with it was I became hypersensitive and hyper aware of his moods in order to keep myself safe and also to sometimes keep the younger children safe. So there was a lot going on, but because I didn't know how I became hypersensitive and hyper aware, I didn't know what the mechanism was. I was three. I didn't know how to turn it off. And so I ended up being that open to everything and everybody and emotions you know, are are one of the ways that we signal to each other, right? So I was picking up emotions all the time and didn't know what to do with them, right? And as you may know, as people who had difficult childhoods like this grow up, many come into a heavy, sort of a heavy load of emotions as they get into especially um, puberty. And so that happened for me. 
I didn't feel just anger. I felt murderous rage. I didn't just feel depressed. I felt suicidally depressed, right? My emotions were big. I was like an opera. I was like an opera you don't want to watch and you don't want to be in. So for me, learning about the emotions wasn't sort of a, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting with my pipe going, I would like to learn about emotions. It was more, I'm going to learn about these things or they're going to kill me because it's so overwhelming. So that was where I came to from it is and feeling like most people do that emotions are just no good. They're just trouble. They're a problem. And that was where I started and where I ended is, oh my goodness, emotions are everything. They are what helped me survive and they're what helped me heal. So this book is sort of a love story. Starts out rough, ends up really beautiful. <laughs> it's a love story between me and the emotions. And what I found as I was moving through life is that other people were responding to it as well. And then that became sort of the center of what I do in the world. And this book is, you know, going out to other people who had much less complex childhoods than I did. But who've heard all their lives, like I had, that emotions are trouble. They're, you want to avoid them. They're not good. And so, yeah, this is very, very outside the mainstream. Yeah. I do want to say that I really appreciate the way that this book is, I think the word I'm looking for is kind of like constructed. It's accessible to me, very interesting to me. As I look at like chapter 16, for example, fear, I'm not sure if that's exactly a chapter, but it's on page 225 and it's fear, it's intuition and action. You provide us with the gifts that fear brings. You provide us with the internal questions that um, we might ask when we experience fear. You provide us with signs of obstruction where fear might be causing that blockage, right? And then practices around that, nuances of fear the family of fear, because there's a whole spectrum of emotion. I've heard from different therapists that I've worked with, like that four main emotions, joy, sorrow, fear, anger, I believe is what I've heard. And I, I'm not sure if that's the absolute truth in your opinion, but I, I like to think about like primary emotions and then the cousins and the relational aspects of what, what comes along with fear. So I found this orientation to thinking about emotions really helpful and accessible in the way that like, okay, well now I can look at fear without just being absolutely frozen with fear. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. So thank you for that. And I think that the question I wanted to ask next is as it relates to how we label negative emotions versus positive emotions, why we accept some emotions and or embrace or always want to be in the realm of joy or bliss. And it's hard for us to think about emotions like fear and hatred as a tool or something helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest uh, problems with how we're taught about emotions is if we learn to see an emotion as negative, then right away, we're going to want to avoid it, right? So that means we won't learn it. We won't learn how to speak to it. We won't develop skills around it, except maybe repression or exploding with it, right? If we repress, 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 and then explode. A lot of people do that with anger. It's like they don't even know there's a third choice. And that's a real problem because most of the emotions, I work with a 
a model of the four emotion families, but 17 total emotions. And I think uh, 14 of them are classified as negative, which is, I think, something like 82% of emotions, right? So if we think of emotions as negative and positive, then we are going to be getting an F minus in the, in the emotional realm, right? Because an F is 50% and we, are, we had to get our grade up to get an F at emotions. If we're avoiding 14 of them, then that leaves the three that we've identified as positive to do massive heavy lifting in our lives. And the sad thing is each of the 17 emotions is a, brings us different skills and abilities like fear is our instincts and our intuition. If we're trying to use happiness, contentment, or joy, which are the three positive emotions, when it's time for us to be intuitive and instinctual, the three positive emotions are going to be like, friend, what are you even doing? This isn't our job. Stop it. Right? So we would think, okay, then positive emotions are okay, right? Sure, I understand what you're saying about negative emotions, but positive emotions are positive. So I still want to think of them that way. The problem is, if we think an emotion is positive, we're going to want to have it all the time even when it's totally inappropriate to be feeling that emotion. And it ends up, we can see that thinking of negative emotions is very abusive toward those emotions. But I think it's even more abusive toward the positive emotions, the allegedly positive emotions, because we lose our connection to what they actually do and what their purpose is, because we just want to throw them on top of everything. Like there's a word in English, unhappy. There's not unsad unjealous, unhatred, unanger, right? The idea is anything that isn't happy needs a whole word, right? And looking at emotions as negative and positive, what I say is you'll never understand them if you if you do. You won't be able to understand emotions if you continue to look at them as negative and positive. We see emotions as having very specific purposes. And the only time that they would be negative is if they come up where they're not appropriate. For instance, laughing at a funeral. Laughing is great. It doesn't belong at a funeral. So when an emotion is appropriate, it's always if we have to use the word positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking about in the work that I've done on myself, my self-development, working with different therapists, the one therapist I'm thinking of was trying to teach me how to use anger as a tool. Mm-hmm. And this therapist described it as kind of like uh, learning how to use a knife, right? So sharpening that having the blade be sharp enough to cut when I needed it to and and to know how to use it when I needed to use it and put it away when I need to put it away. And that struck me as so helpful because we knife such a helpful tool in our lives. But then like to your point, you know, if we don't know how to use that knife, and we really need it at some point, we're probably going to cut ourselves or maybe we're going to cut someone else. So how do we learn how to work with this tool, this emotion of anger? Let's say anger is the one we want to learn how to use. If like, for example, it wasn't ever modeled to us as children as something that was acceptable or healthy or okay, or even allowed. Yes, especially there's a there's a big gender split. And I know I'm talking about a gender binary, so I apologize. But female girls, women tend not to be allowed to have anger. Male bodies tend not to be allowed to have sadness or grief. And so a lot of 
women, when it's time to be angry, they have no skills. They don't, they literally don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Right? They just they haven't learned it. And so there's a lot of trouble in how we're taught about emotions. Yeah. Well, what would you, you know, I mean, if you were going to give a key takeaway about learning how to use the tool of anger, mm-hmm. like we can use me as an example, because I still don't feel like I'm very good at it, <laughs> especially because it it does typically come as an outburst. For example, I might start shouting at my partner who immediately shuts down, who will just not hear me if I start shouting at him. And sometimes the anger is warranted in certain situations in our, in our dynamic, how do I use that in a way that serves me, gets my point across, but allows him to hear me? Does that make sense? Yeah. The way I look at anger is that it is the emotion that sets boundaries and how we set boundaries is up to our skill set. So I can set a boundary by saying, no, I don't want to go there today. Let's talk about next week. That's a boundary. I don't want to go there. So that's a skill set of setting a boundary in a calm way, maintaining the relationship. Anger is very relational and giving the person another option, right? I could also say, no, stop asking me to go there, right? Now that's a stronger boundary and I've actually hurt the person, right? So that's not exactly a a strong anger skill unless, you know, unless someone is coming and pushing at me, I will say a hard no. You know, it's like if I'm in danger, I'm like, hell no. Right. But you can also give up with anger and you can go, well, I guess I can, I guess I can go. I can just put, you know, the stuff I was going to do aside. Right. That's not a boundary. And it gives such a poor message to the other person that they maybe don't even know who we are and what's going on anymore. So anger is in its totality about boundaries and it's our skill set that helps that anger do its work. A lot of us have been taught that anger is mostly violence, right? Yelling, shouting, pushing, screaming, punching, but anger doesn't actually have a violence feature to it. If there's violence coming out of any kind, that's panic. Panic is the emotion that has the fight behavior, fight, flee, freeze, flock to safety. And in the book, I talk about when anger and panic are together. I shipped it. I gave it this little relationship name and it's called panger. And that's something that we work on a lot is most of us have only seen panger. We've only seen panic helping anger out. We haven't seen anger by itself. So when people say, I don't even know what about anger, I'm like, yeah, you don't know what, because mostly panic is there. Mm-hmm. Panic is fighting, which is like, screw you. It is fleeing. I'm not going to talk about this until you calm down. That's a panger behavior. Or it's freezing. I don't know what to say, right? So if you have fight, flee, or freeze behaviors in your anger, panic is there. Panic is a brilliant life-saving emotion. We don't want to kick it out, but to know when it's there, then you can make decisions about what's happening. And so anger's job is to set a boundary and you can do that. You can do that kindly. You can do that with love. And panic's job is to save your life when you're in danger. So these two emotions hang around a lot together in our modern lives. Thank you, panic. (laughs) Go lay down. Go lay down. (laughs) 
<laughs> you panic. <laughs> that's, that's an affirmation that I, I would like to practice. <laughs> I think it's what's interesting to me around this work. What I found so helpful is the developing a vocabulary, mm-hmm. not even just a vocabulary, but also being able to, well, maybe this is the same thing, but I think of it as like being able to label my emotion in the moment I'm feeling it. And that to me feels like a magic wand. Yeah. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Why it's it really so- is. I developed an emotional vocabulary list like in 2012, 2013. And I did it by going on my Facebook page and my and my website and just everybody give me words, right? And so it was this crowdsourced emotional vocabulary list. And then we talked about, is this soft anger? Is it medium anger? Is it intense anger, right? So we got, it's so organized. It's so organized. And people have come onto my site where it is, it's free. And people have said, would you want it in Dutch? You know, would you want it in French? I'm like, yes, I would. So it's in eight languages now, right? But what we found out later is research was showing that developing a stronger and more articulate emotional vocabulary all by itself gives you emotion regulation skills. And you're like, why? Because in many cases, when you're dealing with what we would call difficult emotions, you're a little bit activated, right? You're a little bit riled up. If you don't know, oh, I'm feeling soft panic with medium anger and a bit of anxiety, right? Just saying those words can help your organism calm down and say, oh, I'm not dying of a heart attack right now. Okay. These are just emotions. This is okay. So it's almost a way of being a better body owner. And further research has shown that it also tends to have cardiac and neurological benefits because again, you're not just letting yourself be activated with no consciousness. You're able to articulate what's happening to you. And you, you know, develop greater self-awareness, greater emotional regulation capabilities just by getting a better vocabulary. So each of the emotion chapters has little vocabulary. And then at the end, there's a big emotional vocabulary list. It's fun. I have a little story. One of our friends had an emotional vocabulary list at home. I have a little fold out one. And his son came in and was inconsolable, just crying and crying. He was about eight. And the dad was like, what do you need? What's going on? The son could not stop crying. And so the dad goes and gets the emotional vocabulary list, which the son had seen. And he just gives it to him. He's like, what are you feeling? What? And the child looks through it and goes, hmm. Hmm. And goes, dad, can we go on a bike ride? And that was it. It was almost as if it was organizing his, you know, little organism. But also I think there's a way especially with kids, they feel so overwhelmed. It's as if no one has ever felt these feelings before. And he saw it was in a word and he could find two words that really said what he was feeling and no longer felt alone. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this is a human thing that is happening to me. Let's go ride a bike. I just, I love that story. <laughs> so cute. I love that. I can identify with that kid for sure. <laughs> Sometimes we just need some fresh air and exercise. (laughs) I love that. Thank you. So I often wonder 
what are your thoughts on emotions versus feelings? Are these synonymous? Are they different things? What do you think about emotions versus feelings? Somebody asked me that and I went, easy. Emotion is the noun and feeling is the verb. But it's not so simple because a lot of people use the two words together. Basically, when you are utilizing your vocabulary, you are feeling the emotion. You are feeling and identifying it. So I know, you know, I've known people who were clearly having an emotion, but they weren't feeling it appropriately. So they would say like, I'm not angry. Your mother's angry. Okay. Because you're angry, but they don't have any concept of it. Right. So they're feeling the, I mean, the emotion is there. They're not feeling it skillfully. So I see them as, as two different functions. I can feel that my arm is hurting. I can feel cold or hot. I can feel emotions. I see emotions as a noun. Thank you. I always think about it. That's a topic that sometimes it will randomly pop into my head and I'll just ask myself, what is the difference between an emotion and a feeling? Is there one? So thank you. <laughs> um, that's that's a helpful little, it's easy to visualize. I like that. Emotion is a noun, feeling is a verb. And on that subject, you talk about how love is not an emotion in the book. And I'd love to hear you talk about that here. That is something people keep wanting me to make love an emotion. And so I wrote, I wrote a chapter called Why Love is Not an Emotion. <laughs> it's not an emotion. And I think what I say is when love is healthy, it repeats itself over and over again through time and beyond death. When an emotion is healthy, it doesn't do this. You don't have the same emotion going over and over and over again. Emotions move, they come up, they go to different intensities, they they move with each other, panic and anger hanging around, right? They're constantly moving kaleidoscope. For me, love is stable and it is forever. Now, I was taught love by animals, so I may... (laughs) I may have a different view. You know, for for a lot of people, love is romance, which is very unstable. It's very unstable. You're in love. You're out of love. Someone starts behaving like a human being. You're out of love. You know, it's very, very destabilized. But for me, love is like a deathless promise. If I have decided to love you, I'm going to love you forever, no matter what you do. If you hurt me, I'm going to still love you, but you're going to have to go. Yeah, you got to go and you can't have my credit card. But for me, love is like this stable thing that is sort of even underneath emotion. And I see emotions as being these pretty ancient forms of wisdom. But I think love is even underneath that for me. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. I loved reading about your, speaking of love, I loved reading about your relationship with animals and the connection that you had with them as a small child and the way that you were able to heal them just, it sounded like what you were describing sounded almost like Reiki, like you were listening to their energetic vibration um, just by sitting with them, feeling with them. I'm wondering if you continue to foster that connection or do any of that work in your life right now. And if there's anything else you want to say about your connection with animals as well. As a little hypersensitive and hyperempathic kid, I was a little too weird for the world. But animals really liked and trusted me. And I liked and trusted them. One of the big things that I found is that 
most of us, because our emotional education is so poor and it's positive and negative and things that don't help at all, most people lie about what they're feeling. Either they don't know or they're actually lying. And so I couldn't find my place in human culture. I didn't think that I was a human. I found my place with animals because they never lie, right? If they're afraid, they're afraid. If they're angry, they're angry. They're, you know, they feel what they feel and they don't lie. And so I found them so soothing to be with. And I found that my hypersensitivity to sort of everything, if an animal was feeling any kind of pain or struggling at all, I could sort of key in on that and then see what I could do. You know, to see what I could do. What about if I rub your leg right here? Does that feel good? No, ouch. Okay, how about over here, right? And so I would communicate with them. And um, yeah, as a child, the kids in the neighborhood, they called me the animal girl. And if there was any animals who were having trouble, they would bring them to me. So in a way, it was very sweet. They were trying to find a place for this weird little angry girl. So they gave me my position in the neighborhood. And I found ways to just create this safe and warm kind of environment around myself so that the animals would feel safe. And I think most of us know how to do this. If you're ever walking in nature and you suddenly come upon a wild animal like a deer, you know to settle down your whole being, just settle yourself and um, translate, I'm not a threat. It's like, I don't know what that is, but we all know how to do it. Or you're going to get kicked by a big elk, right? You just need to tell the elk, I am not your enemy friend. Yeah. And that's something that then translated into the skills of grounding and focusing that I teach in the language of emotions and in my work and setting boundaries, which as a very hypersensitive person, setting boundaries is crucial for me. And in terms of that work, any animal in the neighborhood or any animal who sees me knows that I'm available for them. And I've learned not to wear light colored clothing because there will be a dirty cat who wants to come and load me up. So I'm just like, no white clothing ever. Because it, would be, it says to all animals, Carla is available for muddy hugs. Okay. <laughs> and then I also do work now with, I do a direct outreach, street outreach with unsheltered people in my community which is uh, Sonoma County, California, and it's very expensive to live here. So that creates a homelessness crisis all by itself. And during the pandemic, we did a terrible job in our community of taking care of these people. So I would go out, I just go out with food or clothing or whatever it is we have. We're a, we're a nonprofit and um, we're all volunteers. And there's a lot of times that the people who are unsheltered are treated, are dehumanized very strongly a lot of my friends out on the street have been hit by a car intentionally more than once so me coming up on them before they know who I am I had to do a lot of that gentling and then add some friendliness into it if that even makes sense right but you know getting out of my car saying hey how are you right and you know I just finding ways to sort of telegraph I'm safe and I care about you. And I found that people do read that, especially if you've been on the street and I was homeless for a while. You learn how to read people, right? You, you have to, you have to learn how to. So I've got a little hypersensitive, hyperempathic people out there being dehumanized and treated horribly. And so when I'm coming up on them, I have to be very aware of how I do it. 
And um, I've only come up on like two people that were just not even willing to be in engagement with me. And I'm like, okay, no problem. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. I always wonder, and I'm sure this is such a nuanced answer and I'm sure there's, so feel free to expound. I think often about what is more helpful, what can I do? And I'd love to hear a little bit more about the work that you do when you go visit encampments in terms of specifically, you know, what you might say when approaching. I understand and I can I can visualize what it might look like to ground, try to provide a sense of softness and approachability and kindness because I teach yoga and I try to create that similar environment in a yoga class, that sense of safety. But it feels different outside, I guess, if I'm approaching somebody that doesn't know me, I don't know them. I'm not sure what their needs are. I don't want to be presumptuous in assuming, oh, I know what you need here. You need money here. You need food. Maybe you need both. Maybe you need something else. Maybe like you were saying, you just need some humanity, some acknowledgement, some, you know, how are you? What would you say to that in terms of what is the best way, I guess, you know, verbally speaking, is, and I don't even know if there is one right way, I'm sure there isn't, to approach someone who looks like they might be unsheltered or unhoused. I tend to go up, you know, someone's sleeping, some of the people in our in our nonprofit will wake up sleeping people and give them food. I'm like, if you're sleeping, I'm gonna let you sleep. I'll see you next time. But I tend to say, hey, y'all, I'm Carla. I have things and I have stuff. What do you need? You know, and I've got my car is called the green machine. It's like a it's a old Scion XB. It looks like a toaster and it's bright green. So my car is funny anyway. <laughs> it's like a clown car. And then I just bring them to my car and let them choose things because a lot of outreach is like, you know, you have to sign this and you have to do that. And um, none of us want to be involved in that kind of a thing. But basically, yeah, I have some people who are, you know, they'll be grabbing stuff and they'll be like, well, are you with a church? Because the church has come out and try to proselytize, right? That's not cool. That's not giving. So there's a lot of that. I can get a distrust because other people who've come up on them are doing it for non- would you say? I've lost the word, but dishonest. They're doing it for dishonest, self-serving reasons. And so a lot of times it's sort of making sure they know whatever those people do, this is a different thing. Let's do this together. Let's be together. So it's relationship building. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is the name of your nonprofit? I I missed that. It's called Sonoma County Acts of Kindness. And it was started during the pandemic when We had a a bike trail that I was driving home and there was a mile of tents. As I'm driving down, I'm getting more and more furious. I'm like, where's the county? Where's the city? Where's social service? You know, I'm like yelling. And I went on Facebook and I was like, who is helping? And there were a lot of people who were, but these ones were the cool ones. They're like democratic socialists and anarchists. They're very cool. (laughs) They're like, I was like, I want the dirty, brown, angry street Jesus. I don't want any of these blue-eyed, white, transphobic Jesuses. No. So yeah, we're they're very much the street, the street people. So I really like being with them. And it really helped me feel a lot less despair about what was going on in the country. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's a, I'm up in the Pacific Northwest, I think I mentioned, and very similar scene, especially during the pandemic, also current day. It's hopeful and helpful to hear from you about that. Yeah, yeah Seattle and Portland have a huge homeless population. Oh, my yeah. word. Yeah. Yes, we do. So thank you for the work that you do. Appreciate it. And I love hearing different ways. We just had a, um, a couple of weeks ago, a guest on the show, Dr. Quan Stewart, who is, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but he's known as the street vet. And he- Oh, will, oh cool. I have heard. Yeah. He's, yes. he's a cool guy too. So maybe you've, he's in California, but he's down in Orange County area. Yeah. And, he's in the LA area. Yeah. Yeah. No, that would be that would be so wonderful. We just had someone come to the local humane society, who's really an anarchist, and he is bringing food out to the dogs instead of making people come to them. And he's just I support him in whatever way I can. And I'm like welcome, 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 and I take him and I, I introduce him to everybody because he's got such a good heart. And yeah, these are like the the bright spots in yeah. this world. Yeah. Which we need. We need these things. Yeah. So, okay. I want to go in the opposite direction of, well, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> not in the opposite direction <laughs> of right <on>. spot. <laughs> well, because we did, we talked about not necessarily labeling our emotions as negative or positive. So I'm trying to adopt this mindset when I say, let's talk about jealousy and envy. For me, and I know that so many people can empathize, those are hot spots. Jealousy and envy feel like they work against maintaining healthy relationships in my life, in my experience. So can you talk about how can we have these experiences of jealousy and envy? How can we acknowledge it and maintain healthy relationships? These two, I mean, it changes every day, but these two are some of the most hated emotions in the whole emotional realm. And in the Roman Catholic tradition, envy is one of the seven deadly sins. Actually, five of the de seven deadly sins are emotions. So that tells you how we feel about emotions, right? Or at least how the Catholic tradition does. But these two emotions are crucial. I call them the sociological emotions because their job together and apart is to help us position ourselves healthfully in social structures and in relationships. So jealousy deals with love and intimacy and envy deals with access to resources, recognition and approval, security. Both of them deal with security and loyalty as well. And so they have this kind of amazing sociological genius about what is happening around me and what's fair and what is equitable and, and what is loyalty. And, and as it is with anger, how you work with your jealousy and envy has to do with your skills or whatever skills any of us manage to develop around these emotions because they're so hated. It's like, don't feel that. I was thinking about how we train kids when little kids have someone over and they're like, don't play with my train, mm -hmm. right? So the child is saying with their envy, this train belongs to me and I have a right to it. This is mine and I need to say what I need to say. And most parents will jump in and make them share the train, right? They'll make them do it. This is your friend and this is your guest. And we give guests what they, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so from a very young age, we don't let children have envy. Right? We don't let them do it. I don't know if you've had siblings, but there's like a cake cutting or a pie cutting or a meat cutting thing with siblings where 
they'll be like, she got one one tenth of a gram more than I did, you know, and you're like, you need to both go to your room. You're never having pie again. But there's this equality energy in kids. And a lot of times it gets crushed by parents who are like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You stop it. But the trick is let one of them cut it and let the other one choose. You will never see such good cutting <laughs> as when they know that they're cutting and that the other one gets to choose. That will teach them about all sorts of things, right? But, but stopping kids from doing that. Another thing that we stop kids from doing, especially if there's more than one child in the family is we don't let them have the parent they want right I'm the parent of two people I love all my kids the same that's not true I don't know how you would say that to kids right we have our own relationship with kids and we haven't figured out a way yet to help kids have their own strong relationships with one parent or you know whichever parent they want it all has to be sort of shared. I came from a family with five kids and I would sit in the bathtub and I would tell my mother, when I lived in China, <laughs> I had one mother and she had one child, you know, and my mom would go, really? Yeah, how was it in China? <laughs> I was like, and when I grow up, I'm going to have one child. <laughs> it was really important to me, you know, to be the center of someone's life. And that's hard in the family of seven. <laughs> but in China, apparently it happened for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> so it sounds like a first key step acknowledgement is is to allow the emotion. Yes. Especially in children and then as adults. Yeah. Is there There's a wonderful book called The Necessary Passion? Uh and it's by a sociologist, David Buss, who looked at situations of what is it called? Pathological jealousy. And I'm putting finger quotes around that. But when things were looked at further, it turned out that the person who they were with was cheating on them or their own self-image really got in the way of their ability to accept love, right? So there was something wrong that the jealousy was talking about. But because the people had no skills for jealousy, they didn't even know what it was, except it's a negative emotion, so let's not have it. They didn't know that this brilliant sociological emotion was saying something is wrong in the area of relationship and loyalty. Something is wrong here. So the questions we have for jealousy and envy, and there's questions for every emotion, for jealousy is what kinds of intimacy do I desire and want to offer? When jealousy and envy are well situated in the psyche, they make sure that everybody else is okay. Because just having enough for yourself is not safe or intelligent in terms of your social structure. And then the second question is, what betrayals must be recognized and healed? And those betrayals can be the partner betraying you or you betraying yourself by not believing that you're worthy of being loved and by you know, like continually getting in the way of allowing people to love you. And with envy, the questions are, what resources and security do I desire for myself and others? And the second question is, what inequalities must be made right? Yeah. So, Carla, first of all, thank you. I find that such a helpful reframing. And I want to be mindful of your time. And I really loved what I, what I 
like to do, if it's okay with you, is read just a little bit from your book. It's the beginning of, it's the way that you open part two, embracing your emotions. And this to me read like a poem almost, or a little, an essay. And a, anyone who's listened to the podcast and who's heard me speak before knows I am a lover of poetry. So I was hoping to help us close by reading this. Oh, thank you. Yeah, of course. So embracing your emotions. One day, or maybe it was an eon ago, you fell apart. That concrete self you had meticulously constructed melted as if it were spun sugar dipped into water. And that part of you who knew that you knew that certain part fell away. And all those meaningless things that made perfect sense in the light of day faded. You believed you were alone, but no, you were filled with oceanic voices, influences, entities, dancing you, singing you, remembering all that you are, never fooled by the ways you had learned to be someone you're not. One holding you fast to your word, upright and principled. One dreaming your deepest loves into being. One giving you the courage to die to everything but what is true and essential. One skipping you forward, leaping and laughing. One swiftly gathering every resource and saving your precious life. Each, all, blessing you with indispensable forms of astonishing genius. Rumi called them guests and guides from beyond. I say they're the ancient true language of your sacred, irreplaceable soul. Mm, so good. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Carla. So in closing, I'm wondering if there's anything that you would like or would hope that somebody would take away either from this conversation or from the book. I would say in a nutshell, emotions don't cause problems. Emotions come to help you deal with the problems. And if you can learn their language, you can save your precious, irreplaceable life. That's so beautiful. Carla, it's been such a pleasure. I don't know that I have the correct words <laughs> to let you know how much I've enjoyed our conversation. But I do want to say for all of those listening, please check out the book. I find it such a helpful tool to have on the shelf. It's you know, you can read it from beginning to end. You can open it kind of like a dictionary in terms of, hey, I'm having this emotion, not sure what to do with it. Here is some helpful ways to think about it, reframe it, ask myself some questions, do a journal prompt. So it's just an invaluable tool. The language of emotions is what I'm saying. Carla, what's your favorite way to connect with people on the socials? Do you prefer people to go to your website? Do you like to be active on Facebook, Instagram? I'm on Facebook and Instagram and my website, carlamclaren.com. That's where the free emotional vocabulary list is in eight languages. Yeah. And uh, where else am I? Oh, I have a, an online learning site called empathyacademy.org. And we give courses and workshops there every month. Wonderful. We'll make sure all of that gets into the show notes. And thank you so much for your time today, Carla. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. 
This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com. <laughs>